0: I'm Stephen, I'm the lead pastor of City on a Hill, uh, Forest Hills, and I have the joy of preaching for you this morning. Uh, Excited to be with you. Um, Our church loves your church as as part of the same City on a Hill network. Um, I love your pastor and his family and your leaders here. And so I kind of had a joy and an honor uh, to get to teach this morning uh, as we look and continue to look at John chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, open it up with me to John chapter 2. Uh, and this week, we'll be looking at something a little different. Last week, we looked at the wedding at Cana, uh, and if you were with us, we looked at this really awesome party that Jesus kicked off where he turned water into wine. I jokingly, last week at our congregation, said this is every college student's favorite miracle uh, when water gets turned into wine. Um, and, and if you look at chapters 2 through 12 in the book of John, this has been described as the book of signs. Uh, this is a section of the scriptures where John is showing these different stories about Jesus doing miraculous works, which point to a greater reality. So all of these stories are going to be pointing to some aspect aspect. of Jesus as the Messiah doing the greater work to save. And so in John chapter 20, John said that the reason and the purpose for this book was so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that He came to save and that you would believe in Him. So all of these are pointing us towards this reality. And so the water into wine story is an easy one for us to believe. It's a pretty light-hearted story. We're excited. Water's being turned into wine. This is a wedding I would want to go to. Um, th- this is demonstration of, of Jesus's joy. We can all get on board with that. But today's message is a little bit different than that. Um, Back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there were types of songs called power ballads. Anybody know what a power ballad is? A couple of people, I see some nodding heads. If you don't know what a power ballad is, you're too young to know what a power ballad is. It was a song, a love song written by a rock band, which usually typically was a harder rock band, that was just the way that they would sell some records. They knew if they just made a love song, they would make more money. And so they would have this really soft song that didn't match the rest of their style or tone. And so if you only knew that band by the power ballad and then bought the entire album, you would be like, this feels a little aggressive. This feels like a little more than I had bargained for. And in the same way, this is a little bit of what we're coming to with Jesus. Jesus has started us off with a message, or John has, of Jesus' joy in him filling uh, these, these vats of wine and, and giving wine and then shifts to something that's a lot harder for us to hear. But in the same way that you couldn't say you are a fan of that band if you just like the power ballad, you can't just take the wine-giving, joy-filled Jesus and ignore everything else that Jesus does. You have to take all of Jesus and all of Jesus's ministry. Uh, we have to take the holiness of Jesus that he is bent on that we're going to see in this text this morning— It's a little bit like what Tim Keller describes this. He says, it's like you're driving down a road. And as you drive down that road, there's a giant tree that has fallen in the middle of that road. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend it's not there. You can't believe it away. You can't say, well, I'm just going to take the the nice, easy, winding road and ignore the tree. Because if you do, you're just going to run into the tree. You have to deal with this and have to take all of Jesus and all of his ministry So a little bit of backstory as we walk through our text today. If you look at verse thirteen, we want to look at what causes this scene. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover was the biggest one of it was the biggest Jewish festival of the entire religious calendar for the Jews, and they would come together every late March, early April, and they would remember God's faithfulness to the Hebrew people when they were in captivity in Egypt. And the story as it went then is God came to Moses and he told them to to slaughter a lamb and paint the doorposts of their houses with blood so that the angel of death would pass over their home, saving their family. And then we see how God led them out of captivity. And so every year they would recapitulate this. They would relive it and retell the story of God's faithfulness to pass over them. And so every year they would go up, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem Because Jerusalem was up on a mountain And people from all around would come. And we see that the the Passover was at hand. This was a massive event every year. Jerusalem at this time would have been about 80,000 people in population and would swell to about 500,000 people on the Passover festival. This is sort of like the big move on steroids. Everybody is coming. It's chaos. And they prepared for this day for weeks and for months for them to be able to do these sacrifices. And we see this in verse 14, that this is what's happening. In the temple, He, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Jesus comes in and He sees these animals. And on one hand, the scene we're looking at is a very practical thing. You have hundreds of thousands of people who are traveling from all over Israel, and they're trying to figure out how do we get our animals across hundreds of miles to go take to the temple to sacrifice. And to give you an idea of of just how big of a festival this was, historians say that because of the hundreds of thousands of people making sacrifice, there would have been blood literally running out into the streets. This is a lot of animals that are being brought forward for sacrifice. So one thing that sellers began to do, and this is just good commerce, is they said, we're going to start selling animals to the people who travel to Jerusalem. They come from a long way. We're going to, you know, they're having to wrangle kids and all kinds of stuff. Let's just sell animals there. They also had money changers there because there was a particular type of coin you had to use in the temple called a Tyrian coin because of the level of silver in the coin. Now, the problem is is not that they were doing the practice, it was where they were doing it. It's the fact that they had moved into the temple. The original practice was that they had set up the stalls to sell animals out in the Kidron Valley, which was about a few miles away from Jerusalem. The money changers would be there. And so they would do that, and then they would take the rest of the journey into Jerusalem. But here we see that they have moved into the temple courts. They have chosen convenience over the sacredness of God's house. And in fact, when we look at the the exchange of money, there are some scholars who believe that this may have been an unjust system that targeted the poor unfairly. And so Jesus in verse 15 is having none of this. It says, and making a whip of cords. Now think about this. Jesus did not bring a whip with him. He found things in the temple to make a whip out of. He, 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 you see Jesus in the corner, and you can imagine the scene. A passerby sees Jesus just, you know, twisting some pieces of leather together and says, hey, Jesus, what are you doing? He said, oh, no, y'all are about to find out. Like, we're, it's about to get real. Jesus stops, makes a whip, weaves it together, and then drives out all the animals in the cellars. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Now, for some of you, if you have anger issues, this is your favorite passage. Because we love the idea of being able to act like Jesus and Jesus turned over tab- tables and I can do that too. Well, a few things. Number one, you're not Jesus, okay? Jesus is God, which means his anger is perfectly righteous and our anger very rarely is. In fact, the scriptures say that the, ri- the anger of man rarely produces the righteousness of God. So there is a, something for us for here for us to consider that we should not be angry people. But why is Jesus doing this? Verse sixteen it says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus goes to this, this extreme, not so much because of the activity, but because of the attitude. They have made his father's house a house of trade. You've taken the focus off of this place, a place that's meant to be a, a place of worship and honor and glory to God, and you have made it a marketplace about greed and power and money. And in verse 17, Jesus' disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered, as any good Jewish student of the law would, Psalm 69, 9, this telling of a Messiah, a Savior who would care so much with such passion for the holiness of God's house that it would consume everything that He did. And we see that Jesus came not just to clear the temple, but He came to cleanse the temple. He came to make it completely new. Cleansing it for what? He wanted God's house to be Holy. He removes everything that takes away from the attention that God deserves. He removes everything that makes God's name small and that everything impure has to go. And so let's take a minute and let's unpack that word holy. What is holiness? We first need to understand that God is is not just holy. God is holy. It's not just something He's like. It's what He is. God is holiness itself. It's who He is. And what this means is that He's the standard of everything true, beautiful, and good. In His holiness, He's the standard of everything true and beautiful and good. Which means when we come to the truth of God's Word, we can trust that it communicates who God is and what He's done. And that when we trust God and follow His ways, it actually leads to life and flourishing for us. That His holiness is meant for our good. He's also the standard of beauty. What's amazing about about the Bible and the way it describes holy instruments in the Old Testament is it describes them as beautiful. If you look at the detail at which they go in the Old Testament to describe the, the items that are in the tabernacle or in the temple or even the priest's garments, it's beautiful language. But even the way that God is described is described as beautiful. Psalm 50 Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God is the standard of everything that is beautiful. He's also the standard of everything that's good. All that God calls good is good. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1 when God came and created all things. And at the end of each day of creation, He declared it to be good. In other words, it has a purpose. Its goodness finds itself in relation to the God who created it. And we see that in the creation of people, God said it was very good that we find our goodness in relation to God. He is holy, is the standard of holiness, but also it means he's separate in his holiness. The word holy means other or set apart. He's so far beyond our categories of beauty and goodness and truth. It's a little bit like a kindergartner trying to paint the Mona Lisa with their opposite hand, which is just how I paint in general. I am an awful artist. Uh, One of the worst fights my wife and I have ever gotten into is over painting. And so it was her birthday one year. And I said, hey, I know you love, you're a really great artist. I want to, my wife's a great artist. and she would never admit that. But I'd say, let's paint together. Let's have like our own little painting party. And so I picked something I think was going to be easy. I picked this picture of like a bear, clown, pig, very colorful. And I start to paint it. And she looks at it and she says, did you even try? And I was upset because I tried, okay? I tried really, really hard, No matter how hard we try, we are like that kindergartner painting with the opposite hand compared to the beauty and the goodness and the truth of God. He's that separate. But also His holiness is sweeping. It's all comprehensive. That everything about God is holy. That His holiness is not separate from all the other distinctives of who God is. That He's He's holy in His lovingness. He's holy in His kindness. He's holy in His justice and His mercy and His wrath and His grace. He is holy. So do you see why it's such a big deal for Jesus to go into the temple and see this scene? Do you see why it's such a big deal that Jesus would want to drop everything that's not holy out of the temple because God is holy and deserves our worship and that worship was being made light of? But also you and I are called to be holy. We're called to be holy before God. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, when an an object was considered holy, it was set apart for use by God alone. So if a utensil was set apart for holiness, it would be used for godly means. And if it were to be used for something different, it would defile the object. It'd be like if you have a cutting board and that cutting board is just meant for vegetables and you take a big piece of raw chicken and stick it right on top of it and start cutting. It's gross. It's the same idea. Those items were supposed to be set aside for God, but so are you and I. We relate to God who is holy as people who are called to be holy, which means we have one focus, one aim, and that's to see God get as much glory as possible. And it says, Jackie Hill Perry says, she says, being holy is to behold. You set your sights on a higher love. We set our eyes on Christ and what he's done as the Holy One, and we become holy. Holy. But we so easily let our eyes wander away from the beauty of God to go to lesser things. And this has a dramatic effect. And we're going to look at this this morning. So, first of all, I want to unpack what happens when you don't see God as holy. Borrowed these categories from Caroline Cobb, fantastic categories to help frame this. The first way we see that what happens when we don't see God as holy is our our witness is tarnished, it creates a tarnished witness. This impacted how others were going to see God because they were seeing God's people make little of God. And when we represent God, we're showing other people what God is like. We, we represent God to the world. And as they're representing God, they're like, This is what you think of your God? Now, we represent God to the world not perfectly, not as people who are doing all the right things all the time, but as people who are recipients of grace. So we're, we're leaning on his grace, not on our goodness. This is why we repent. This is why we remember the gospel. But those who know God should look different. Those who've received the grace of Jesus should look different. Our boast should not be in ourselves. It should be in Christ alone. When you go to work tomorrow, your, your goal is not simply to get a promotion. If you go to class tomorrow, it's not simply to get a good grade. It's not simply to be liked by your classmates or your coworkers. It's to honor and glorify God and also love your neighbor. We have a witness before other people, but when we fail to see God as holy, we tarnish that witness. And one of the ways we see it here is that it tarnished their witness before Gentiles, before others. Now, to understand the temple, we need to understand the temple as the entire temple complex. In the center of the temple, you had the Holy of Holies. That's where they would take sacrifices, and the priests would make the sacrifice, and only the priests could go there. Outside of that, you had the temple of, for Jewish or the court for Jewish men. Then you had the court for Jewish women. And then outside of that, you had the court of the Gentiles. That's where people would come who were not yet followers of God, but wanted to be. And there's this theme that runs through the Bible of those who are not in God's family being brought into God's family. And they, this, there's this one little place that they had access. They couldn't get all the way in. And what's being communicated here is not only are you not welcome all the way in, but we're going to use the only space that you're available to be in as a marketplace. And it communicates that we don't take God very seriously because we don't think you're welcome here. I got to visit Westminster Abbey in London back in March, and it is an absolutely beautiful, stunning building. But it was amazing as you walk around because it's just a tourist attraction most of the year now. You walk around and people are taking pictures, and there's this these beautiful, this beautiful stained glass and these beautiful sculptures, and there's been sermon after sermon after sermon preached in this place, and you got people over there laughing and, and, and taking pictures, and it takes away from what the place was meant to be. God's house, God's people, God's church is meant to be a place where those who are not Christians and those who are Christians can both come together and find Jesus. It should be an inviting place. And so two questions we have to consider when we think about our witness is, number one, is the way that you behold God, is it showing God is big enough to demand your life change? Our witness should show that our lives are being changed by the work of the Spirit in us to help us believe in God to help us trust Jesus, to help us see that there are areas of our lives that God demands change. But secondly, is the way you behold God making space to welcome those who are searching? Is there space in your life to invite others in who are searching for God because we enter as people who come the way, understanding that we need only do so by grace? But it also tarnished their witness toward the poor. Now, some people, again, have seen this as an unjust system with some unjust and unfair exchange rates. But even if that's not the case, temple worship at the time had become a status symbol. It had become a fashion show. It's the place you would go and dress as nice as you possibly could. It's where you would go to be seen. And there's a story in Luke where the, the widow is giving her her, her, uh, her offering. And in the temple, as you walked in, there was a big copper offering box. And what would happen is it became a status symbol because Jewish men would walk in with a big bag of coins and they would dump that bag of coins out into the offering box. And what kind of sound do you think it would make when a big bag of coins hit the bottom of that copper box? Clang! And everybody would turn around and they would look and say, who made that offering? Now imagine the widow with her one little coin, taking that coin and dropping that in the offering box. What kind of sound do you think that's going to make? Ting. The tiniest little drop, something that might have brought shame upon her. It's easy for us to make worship and make holiness about ourselves and how good we look, and it excludes those who are on the, on the margins. So does our worship make us look good, or does it make God look big and holy and worthy? The second effect we see is that when we see God as small or we don't see His holiness is it creates hollow worship. Look again at verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Holiness had given way to pragmatism. Holiness and a reverence for God had given way to making it easy, making worship efficient, making worship convenient. We're just going to move the animals in and we're going to get the money changers over here and get them a little bit closer. And they did so at the expense of being reverent before God. When we focus more on ease and more on convenience than the glory of God, we miss the point. Our worship becomes very hollow. And we can do this in lots of ways. One is just by avoiding hard topics. One thing I can say that for, for Aaron and for Kyle and, and for Brandon and anyone who teaches here is they're not going to avoid the hard stuff. This is a passage I would love to avoid because it, it calls us to some hard stuff. We could do so out of ease or convenience or to draw a bigger crowd. There are lots of cool things that we could do to innovate in order to make it more convenient that detract from the holiness of God. And even the way that you engage with church can be a means where you give into ease and convenience and not holiness. It's like the easiest way to engage with church would simply be to find the best preacher you possibly can find online and watch them from from your bedroom, sit in bed, eat breakfast in bed. It'd be to take and find the best produced worship style that's your favorite and just listen to that. Being a part of a community group is not convenient. It's not easy, but it's worth it. There's something about the local church where we come together, not because it's easy, not because it's convenient, but because God is holy that adds some some weight to worship. It's easy to just simply go through the motions of worship to make it rote, to make it formula. Years ago, I worked at Starbucks and Starbucks is not real coffee. I'm sorry if you think it is. It's not real coffee. Everything in a Starbucks is manufactured, it's pre-packaged. They have everything down to a science. So I remember working there years ago, I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning, I'm barely awake, I would go in and they train you that you can make a latte in exactly 23 seconds, Okay, and there's a certain process by which you pull the shots and it's just automated. You hit the button, you steam the milk, you do the pumps, and all that's automated that you can get that thing out like this. I can make you a latte today without thinking and even knowing you were in the room. We approach worship often the same way. It becomes rote, it becomes formula. And this is why Caroline Cobb says that the cleansing of the temple was an indictment on empty religious activity, lip service, and fruitless ritual. You can imagine the scene that as they walk in, and it is absolute chaos with animals everywhere, money being exchanged. That You're like, I'm just going to go in. I'm going to make my sacrifice. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to be seen. And I'm going to be eating Thai food by 12 o'clock. It's easy for us to enter into worship that way. It's easy for us to come to God with a heart that is far from Him. And this is why Jesus quoted the Old Testament in Matthew 15, when He said, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what's the solution to hollow worship? Is wholehearted worship. And I'm not just talking about emotions. Emotions are good. If you're an emotive person, an expressive person, by all means. But sometimes coming to God wholeheartedly is coming numb. Sometimes it's coming when you're struggling. Sometimes it's coming when you don't have the words to say or the words to sing. Sometimes it's coming when you're barely holding in the tears. It's bringing your whole self to God. And that may mean your emotions. That may mean that you sing with every bit of joy that you have. That may mean that you're bringing your sorrow to the feet of Jesus. That may mean that you're coming in so weary you can barely move. It may mean that you come in with all the mess of your sin and your brokenness and you're like, God, I screwed up so many times this week and I'm simply just going to lay it at your feet. It's engaging with your heart, your head, your hands before God with a posture saying, God, all of me is yours. There's a third way that not seeing the holiness of God affects us and it's the wrong why. Now, this is not a trick question, but why do you come to church? No, Don't have to answer that. Just think about that. Why do you come to church? Now, if, if you're coming here because you imagine God in heaven with a clipboard and he's taking attendance, and it's like, well, I got to get at least like 73% attendance, like C for degree. I got to get in and, and God's going to accept me. If you're doing it because you think you're, you're, you're doing this to do good or you're doing this to impress God, you're missing something vital about the gospel. I'm not saying stop coming if you've got wrong motives. God will sort that out, I promise. But you can't impress God. You can't impress him. One of the coolest opportunities I've gotten over the last few years has been I've worked with a ministry called Baseball Chapel. And I've gotten to meet a lot of baseball players. And I'll text with them and it's fun stuff like that. So I texted the other day a guy named Nate Ebaldi who just pitched for the Red Sox and just pitched game five of the World Series, clinched it by pitching six scoreless innings for the Rangers, He's the most clutch pitcher in baseball playoff history, okay? So I pitched it, I texted him and said, hey, Nate, great game, super proud of you. Now, there's nothing I can do athletically that's going to impress Nate. If, if I like start sending him the highlights of our church softball season this past summer, he's not going to be impressed. Like, you know, I led our team in batting. He doesn't care. He just struck out 10 people in the World Series. In the same way, there's nothing we can do to impress God. There's nothing that we can bring to the table to impress him. So the reason we gather is not to impress God. We gather as a response to grace. And we gather to rest in his grace based on what he has done for us. And what you begin to see is it is all about Jesus. And what we do when we get to the wrong why is we forget whose house it is. And what this means is that you're an invited guest to come receive and enjoy the blessings of God. D.A. Carson says, it was a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart without clamor or distracting influences. When you see that Jesus is holy, you see he is the why of why we gather. It's all about him. Now with the time we have left, I do want to give you a positive vision for what beholding God's holiness does in you. So secondly, what changes when you see God is holy? Firstly, is you direct your eyes to a person, not a place. You look to a person, not a place. Look at verse 18. The Jews who would have been the temple authorities, that have been those who are making sure that everything was happening orderly, uh, they see that this caused an uproar. Now, if you notice, their concern doesn't seem to be over the scene itself. It seems to be over, does Jesus have the authority to do this? This was a something the Messiah or the Savior would do. I saw a clip just uh, just last week, uh, of a soccer fan who dresses in the full, authentic, genuine kit of his team and runs out onto the field as they scored a goal. And all the team, they're just cheering around the guy and high-fiving the guy until somebody realizes, wait a minute, this guy doesn't play for our team. They're trying to figure out, is Jesus who he says he is? Does he have authority? He doesn't just look like the guy, is he the guy? And so they're trying to figure this out, but what he had done should have been the clue And they ask, they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this isn't genuine curiosity. This isn't them really wondering if he is the Messiah. It's them failing to grasp who he is. And it's them moving the down markers a little further down the field because they want a Messiah and a Jesus in their own making, not one that they've got to submit to. We we just need another sign and, and then we'll believe And this morning, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I I do want to give you this this warning. If you come to Jesus that way, asking for another sign, rarely will you ultimately believe in him. Because the sign he's given is his life, death, and resurrection on the cross to save you from your sins. But if you come to Jesus and say, God, I'll believe in you if you provide a spouse for me, God, I'll believe in you if you give me kids. God, I'll believe in you if you provide this job or I'll trust you if you heal me. What you're ultimately doing is making that thing God and Jesus is the means to that thing. We have to be careful of that because Jesus is both the means and the end. And he shows us this in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In one way, he's saying, you've already done that. You've already destroyed the place where God is worshiped by your false worship. And in fact, in 70 AD, this temple is going to be torn down. In verse 20, they're, they're kind of incredulous. They say, look, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But clearly, Jesus is not talking about a physical building. He's talking about himself. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it's not about a building, it's not about a place, it's about me. I am the temple. Jesus is saying, I am where you can go to meet God, I am holiness. I am how your sins are forgiven once and for all. I am the Passover lamb, as 1 Corinthians 5 7 says, that has been sacrificed, the one who takes away sin once and for all, not in a place, but in a person. We see Jesus as the better high priest who makes us right with God from Hebrews 9, where it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, to serve the living God. Jesus is our Passover lamb, the one that pays and takes away our sin forever. And here's what this means, that this place is not holy because it's a sanctuary. The room we're sitting in is not holy because there's stained glass. This, this place is holy because the word of God's being preached. This place is holy because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and promised that through his spirit and wherever the word is preached, he would be there, which means that you can draw unto Jesus, not just a place, and that every area of your life can be made holy. The second thing thing that happens when you see God as holy is you see your need to be cleansed. Jesus didn't just come to make the temple clean. He came to make you clean. He came to cleanse your heart. In Malachi chapter 3, there's this picture of the Messiah coming, not to refine a place, but to refine a people. And it says he would refine them with fire and with fuller's soap. That soap is like acid. And so when you think about a goldsmith or a silversmith, are they trying to hurt the gold or the silver? No. They're trying to purify it. They're trying to make that gold or that silver shine as bright as possible And what Jesus is trying to do in us is to make us holy before God, to present us as blameless before him, to present you as holy. The last thing that happens when you see God as holy is you realize you have to tear down your own temple. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say that he will tear down the temple. He dares them to tear down the temple. He says, you tear it down. And they respond by saying, look, it took 46 years to build this, and you're going to have us tear it down, and you'll rebuild it in three days. What they're saying is that's impossible. Exactly. That's the point. Because to draw unto God takes something that you and I don't have the power to do. It takes only what Christ has the power to do. He's saying, take that old temple that you trusted in, where you took sacrifices, what you think will get you close to God, what you think makes your life matter. I want you to take that. I want you to tear it down. Your temple is whatever you do in order to get close or right with God. And for some of us, that is just being good people. We're doing it in a religious way where we follow all the religious rules and we show up at the right times and we give a certain amount of money. Some of us have taken that and made a God in our own image and we have our own set of morals and rules. And if I just do this and show up at the right time and pick the right major and have the right family, then I'm gonna be right with God and with others. But what's fascinating about this is that the temple that had taken 46 years to complete wasn't even done yet. It was a half-built temple. And the thing that you're trusting in is a half-built temple. It's a temple that is not sufficient to save you or make you right with God or with others. But Jesus, the true temple, His work is finished. And the only way to be made right with God is to come to Him and trust that He alone can make you holy. And He does this because He was consumed by death on the cross for you to make you holy. And what the Bible says is that you and I become the dwelling place for God. Let's pray.